When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mike Green, as usual, coming from Marin County these days, incredibly excited to have my good friend Harley Bassman back on on Real Vision for, it's been forever since you and I have had a chance to talk. Basically, the last time we talked was probably an EQ derivatives conference in 2018, 2019. Oh, yeah. It's been a long time. So let's talk interest rates. You are known as Mr. Convexity. You are the inventor of the move index, right? The equivalent of the VIX for the fixed income space in an environment in which chaos and drama dominate the interest rate space. There's nobody that I'd rather talk to than Harley Bassman. Harley, what the hell is going on with interest rates? Well, that's a that's a good question. I, I would say that this notion that rates are exploding higher and uh, bad things are happening uh, it's not quite the case. I would say that when 10 years were at uh, you know, 0.75, that was the wrong price. So all we're doing now is going to the right price as opposed to the, I mean, as opposed to where we were before, which is the wrong price. Um, but I, I would push back at you. We're seeing a, we've seen a significant curve steepening. I'm quite certain we're going to talk about that today uh, quite a bit. But um, I wrote about uh, in November of 2018, I noticed, uh, and you can see on page two, chart two, that the curve was flattening and inverting. And indeed, it inverted in November 2018. And I said in that piece, don't know how, don't know why, can't explain it at all. But by the way, uh, the curve is the best predictor of the economy, uh, as well as other things, but the economy. Uh, And usually you get a recession 17 months later. That's the average. And that would put it sometime in the beginning, first quarter of 2020. Uh, and lo and behold, we had a recession in first quarter of 2020. Now, this required you to um, develop a virus from bats, right, and release it into China and then release it to the United States. But you managed to get the recession. Well, what I want to ask you is, do you think this counts? I'll go first. I say it does, because I say whenever you get some kind of event, especially a recession, that it's always a surprise. And by definition, a surprise is unknown. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a surprise. So therefore, since the, 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 the warning came, we could not predict what it would be, but we did get it. You're saying that a, 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 a bat virus doesn't count. Well, I would say maybe a housing crisis doesn't count from the last recession we had. Does this count, Mike? Well, I I think it does. And I would actually highlight that if I look at many of the components that would have traditionally signaled the recession, we were already there, right? I mean, auto sales had slowed down. Housing sales were no longer growing at a rapid rate. We were beginning to see industrial production turned down. We had relatively weak oil and gas prices, commodity prices around the globe. We're already weakening going into these events. 
right? Um, the one thing that I would suggest people were, were confused by was that equity markets were at all-time highs. You know, that we were not seeing any real evidence of a recession from that standpoint. From my standpoint, it, you know, the profit cycle had turned. We were looking at a decline in industrial profits and, and business corporate profits that's consistent with prior mild recessions. And now it just becomes a question of, did the coronavirus actually cleanse that dynamic or has it somehow morphed it into something that's going to happen in the future? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I definitely think you're right that the recession was predicted by the yield curve inversion, what people should be surprised by is the equity performance into those events. And this would then lead into, we now have a significant curve steepening. Uh, you know, before we started that most of the curve steepenings happened from the Fed cutting the front end uh, versus a rise in the back end. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure about how those all line up. I, I, I tend to just look at the curve and call it a, Call it a day. The, the number is the number. Um, I don't want to think too hard. And if you can look at slide three now, this is a pretty big steepening that we've had over here. We're kind of halfway back to, to uh, what is the, the, the big range. And what's interesting is we have not had what usually comes with a steeper curve. Now, when you look at implied volatility, which is, I guess, my you know sweet spot, what is implied vol? Implied vol is a measure of fear, of risk, of uncertainty uh, going forward. It's the price of insurance for uncertainty in the future. I mean, I guess this would segue into, into in what, the bad things the Fed has done, but that's a different topic later on. Um, usually you get the steeper curve, higher implied volatility. And the reason you do that is the steeper the curve or, or, or the more inverted, either way, you know, when the distant rate is different than today's rate, that means since time only goes forward, the spot rate has to become the forward rate, the future rate, or vice versa, I suppose. And the bigger the difference, the more uncertainty, and the greater the distance it has to travel. And therefore, you should have a higher implied vol for a steeper curve. That hasn't happened yet, looking at this chart, uh, which means one of two things. Um, either vol has to go up. Um, you. Or you could say that since vol is not rising, that maybe that means people believe that the Fed's going to step in and push the back end down with some kind of yield curve control. Uh, I tend to be almost agnostic on some of these things. Or my comment is the two lines will come back into sync. Not quite sure how. And what should be bothersome to people away from you know us convexity vol geeks is that when you get higher implied volatility, you also tend to get wider corporate bond spreads, specifically high yield. So I, I agree with what you're saying there, but and you and I had this conversation offline um, about a week ago where we were discussing this, right? Where my view is, is that we have basically seen a bond price crash um, in the last week or so. And my bias would be that we're heading towards a retest of that with positive divergences. So I, I tend to be pretty sanguine about bonds at this point in time. I could very much be wrong on that, but the historical demand for volatility on a yield curve steepening has two sources of it, as I think about it. The first is, is that there tends to be positive correlation of volatility across asset classes, and a steepening of the yield curve usually has been a bullish steepening of the yield curve, right, where the Fed is cutting rates faster then the 10s are falling or the 30 is falling, right? 
And so when you have that type of event with aggressive cutting, you see the yield curve steepen as we did earlier in 2020, right? Um, the Fed ab aggressively cut interest rates. And while tens and thirties rallied, they didn't rally nearly as much in terms of uh, percentage points as the you know uh, three month and the two year. But the other reason why it happens is when interest rates rise at the longer end is that the mortgage bonds increase their duration significantly. In other words, the propensity to refinance collapses, right? Which extends the duration of the bonds and drives private sector demand for hedging activity. That is historically why I would think that this relationship would exist. But today, we don't see the same degree of hedging for MBS for the very simple reason that a giant chunk of it is owned by the Fed. Does that feel that that may offset some of the characteristics here? Uh, well, I, I've shaken off my Luddite tendencies and joined Twitter recently. Yep. Uh, and I actually posted on this exact topic. It's on page five, part of it. So what's ha happening here is indeed mortgages widen or uh, lengthen and shorten because there's an embedded option. They're actually rather simple to model. I mean, you know what your principal payments are going to be over 30 years. And the only question is, will this bond be repaid? in one month or in 30 years. And that's what kind of drives whether this bond's gonna be a 30 year bond or kind of act like a 10 or 12 year or it's gonna act like a one or two year. Um, and for that negative convexity, negative profile, it drops like a 10 year, goes up like a two year, you get paid extra yield for that. People used to try and manage that risk and who were the managers? Well, the biggest by far was actually the government, uh, but not the Fed, it was Fannie and Freddie. Right. Uh, which I guess maybe they're, they ran these giant trillion dollar hedge funds. They're gone. And then you had people, a lot of real hedge funds, who I call feeder fish, who would try to front run the Fed, uh, front run uh, Fannie and Freddie by buying and selling mortgages, hedge them with swaps and treasuries and futures, hedge the convexity with options and swaptions. They're gone. Without Fannie and Freddie, there's no reason for them to do this trade. Um, the Fed uh, owns a third of the market. And by the way, important detail, they own the worst of the worst because Wall Street uh, kind of filters the bonds that come on in. They give the Fed the worst ones and they keep the good ones and sell them as specific pools to investors at a little higher price. And the, and the biggest thing to think about here is who else owns these things? Well, it's your favorite topic, Mike, index funds. Yeah. If index fund, if the mortgage market's a third of the ag aggregate market, and it's, let's say, a, a seven-year duration, seven-year maturity on average. If rates go up, and that goes from a seven-year to a nine-year, the index funds don't care because the index is now a nine-year. So they're not going to hedge either. And they own the, a lot of this. The only people left, I guess you could say banks might own it. But I mean, a lot of them you know, buy them on their books and hold them to maturity so they don't mark them to market. That leaves the REITs. Um, how big are the REITs? I mean, I mean, you got Annalee, you got AGNC, you got a few others, but really they're not that big. So this notion that uh, convexity hedging is gonna drive the market, I think is totally bogus. I mean, it's a great headline. And if you work in the press, I mean, why not do this? You need to fill, fill, fill the space somehow, but I think it's absurd. What's more interesting to me, and this is on page five, chart five, is the spread between the mortgages and the risk-free tenure 
rate, the swap rate. You can use 10-year treasury. It's kind of the same thing. This has averaged about 72, 75 basis points. So that's the extra yield you get. So for 10 years, 2%, you should get 2.75. Uh, and that's the extra yield you get for taking the risk of it goes down like a 10-year, up like a two-year. That's the convexity mm-hmm. the embedded option. It's now trading in the low 30s. This is just playing the wrong price. The, the option alone is worth more than, than that. So it's actually a negative bet. Uh, it, I mean, I'm, I, I'm trying to describe this thing, but why is that? I mean, as a public policy concept, I suppose it's good because the Fed is keeping this rate suppressed and homeowners, people can refinance at advantageous rate. Uh, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, what's bothersome is that uh, if the Fed ever releases their grip, uh, you're going to see the mortgage market drop by, you know, point, point and a half, like day one, because there's no marginal buyer to take on these securities with a negative option adjusted spread. So th- this, this worries me a lot, but the Fed has basically said they're going to go and keep buying. So I guess the party goes on, but, but people should be careful. And I, I think uh, I've written in the past year why I, I like the mortgage REIT idea. Now, those, those are different than commercial REITs. Mortgage REITs are where they actually, they just buy the, uh, a mortgage bond, not the actual asset. They usually buy it four to one to eight to one, hedge it out and, and give you the spread. I, before, before you move on, I just want to make sure um, when you say four to one or eight to one, we're referring to a leverage ratio here, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, what a mortgage REIT is going to do is, is that they are going to use relatively inexpensive funding costs that's coming from their investor base or from borrowing, corporate borrowing. And they are then extending the duration of that. There's effectively a duration mismatch in a um, annually, for example, or um, certainly in a mortgage ETF, Right where they are, you have daily liquidity or or near term liquidity um, against funding on a longer term basis. Right, so one of the risks, of course, is that instability of capital. If people were to decide to try to get out of these types of products, could actually cause an unwind that would effectively make this chart true. Right, it would would drive that sort of dynamic. Well. That's not clear. First off, these REITs are effectively closed-end funds as opposed to open-end funds, so nope. cash flows don't matter. I, I'm sorry, just to be clear, I'm more referring to um, bond funds that also are significant owners of these. So, for example, Vanguard, et cetera, have their Vanguard total bond index. It's about 30% um, MBS. That, I was referring more to that than than to the analysts, et cetera, but please, please go ahead. Well, the extension doesn't matter to, to them, but yep, I mean, I if Vanguard sells, they're going to sell everything, which will only be a third mortgages. But for these REITs, remember, you have $100 and they then buy $8 or $800 of, of, of mortgages, but they then short $7, $700 of 10-year treasuries or 10-year swaps or futures to, to balance out. So the risk you have with them is the, is the, is the convexity right. risk. But also in the spread, also I think that's why you're seeing a lot of the mortgage REITs trading at a discount to NAV, where in theory they should be trading flat to book value. I think people recognize that these that the uh, there's there's spread risk there that could occur. That doesn't make them a bad investment because if, if if the you know book is 17 and a half and it's trading at 16, well you could take a 10 percent drop in NAV book value and still be fine. Uh, so I, I'm not. 
they're not short, but I think that explains why you're seeing this gap now between the book and the, and the, and the trading price. So when you think about that dynamic, because this is one of the areas that I, I think is actually fairly interesting. Um, if we look at what happened in 2008, which obviously jumps out on this chart, we had a combination of duration extension that needed to be hedged and increased inability to do so because the quality of the product was very much in question, right? So you effectively had a blowout in both the credit component and in the need to hedge as mortgage, as MBS effectively extended in duration, not necessarily because people decided, okay, I have a new low super attractive rate, but simply because refinancing was unavailable for the credit dynamic as well, right? So it kind of got hit with both barrels. We then in, in early 2020 saw the huge vol event associated with coronavirus. But today I would actually argue that, that it seems like there's a pretty good chance actually that if anything, the Fed would step in to suppress this spread even further, perhaps take it potentially negative as they try to incentivize lending to households over lending to financial institutions. In other words, if they were to begin to pass through actually a subsidy, do you think there's a chance that this becomes a policy tool? Oh, God. I, I mean... I love no, talking I, to you because your expressions are so good. I just don't <laughs> think they're going to go and take the mortgage spread. They're not, not going to invert that. At that point, you're going to have uh, speculators and hedge funds come in and short them just to own the free option. Uh, yep. So that's unlikely. I mean, I think... You know, you're kind of leaking into the bigger concept of will we see yield curve control or not, mm-hmm. uh, or other kinds of control. Certainly, you know, volatility reduction is, is has been a, a specific policy that they've been using. Um, I actually think that they're not going to do yield curve control on the back end. My feeling is they're going to hold the the, the, the front end. Overnight rate stays where it is. I mean, as promised for the next two years, uh, no matter the inflation number. Maybe they hold twos, maybe fives, you know. I think they let tens and thirties go, uh, or at least move up. And and that's not a bad thing. Uh, the government can move their funding to the front end, and the Fed can absorb it via their money printing, and we could discuss whether it's money printing or not. You know what I think. Um, and but the back end going up is 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 a public policy good. Uh, a steeper curve helps the banking system. For good or for ill, we no longer do barter. Uh, we don't use gold. We, um, we're a financial economy and we're highly levered. Uh, and the banking system, maybe there's bad guys in there. And certainly there were villains 10 years ago who should have gone to jail um, and didn't. But the banking system is the plumbing of our financial economy and we need to maintain it. And therefore a steeper curve helps that plumbing system. So the government can do, the Fed and fiscal policy can be more efficient. So having a good plumbing system is good. Number two is taking the whole curve down has, has, has not been zero cost. You've taken money from um, the, the lenders and given it to the borrowers. Uh, is that a good thing? No, we've, you've, you've done a show, a few shows on pension fund instability. If we take the back end up, that helps pension funds that helps insurance companies. That's a public policy good. So Steve knew the curve out. I'm not saying rates going from you know zero on the front end to 10 on the back, but putting the back end at three, four, five is not is not a disaster, I don't think, uh, for, 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 for the overall macro economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So when you think about the, the dynamics there, right? So if I look at, um, we're, we're going to get into very technical descriptions here of things like two-year, two-years and four-year, two-years and, and all sorts of stuff. But when I think about the dynamics of um, what is increasingly priced in a year or two out, right? If I look at a two-year, two-year, for example, it's roughly 100 basis points above where we are today. In other words, four Fed tightenings. Um, effectively built into the system. And it potentially even depending on the timing of that, you know, you're looking at more Fed hikings. Um, if I look at a four-year, two-year, I'm looking at um, almost a 200 basis point spread, right? So an additional 86 basis points on top of it. Do you think that there's an element of the yield curve steepness is limited by realistic Fed policy? Right? Are they actually going to, as, as you know, we saw this with um, Jerome Powell in this last cycle, they tried to do a couple of tightenings. They simultaneously tried to tighten the balance sheet, right? which I thought was a mistake. They probably should have moved one policy error at a time to, to see what was actually driving things. But if I look at the forward tightening that is embedded in the system today, does that feel right to you? Do you actually think the Fed can get away with multiple tightenings? Well, I mean, you're, you're stepping into a soft ground right now. Forward rates are not a prediction nope. or a mathematical calculation of the curve. So Correct. we're not predicting where things will be. Now, now you're stepping into to get technical. Should I be buying the, 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 the greens, the blues and the golds? Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, the curve is steepening because the, the tens are pulling everything up. And because that's the part of the curve I think will not be controlled. And you're kind of forcing the rest of the curve to move with it. Where, where do you want to put the kink? You want to put it at the five-year, the seven-year, the three-year? Uh, do I think the Fed's going to be hiking rates in two years? Um, no, I think what they're going to be doing is they're going to be uh, tapering first. I, 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 think, I think tapering, either by reducing or not reinvesting, is the better policy. I think steepening the curve is a better way to, to, to bring uh, the world into line rather than taking the front end up. Uh, taking the front end up... Um, is bothersome in many ways because most people have floaters. Uh, moving people into arms is fine. Corporations very often will will float. Um, so uh, and and the U.S. government to go fund all this spending has jammed the front end. So uh, I, I'm I'm not quite a believer that it's a prediction of higher rates in the future. Uh, more more a consequence of tens going up. To emphasize. Um... I agree it's not a prediction. It is the non-arbitrage condition that is created by a 10 being 10 one-year rates off into the future, right? So at each point, you have to calculate what is the equivalent um, one-year, one-year, two-year, one-year, three-year, one-year, four-year, one-year, et cetera. And by the way, for those in the audience, I'm indebted to Harley to teaching me all this stuff over the past uh, 20 years. So, But the, I, I would look at, for example, a four-year, two-year at 186 and say that price is probably as wrong um, or feels as wrong to me uh, on the top side as the tens did at you know, 50, 60 basis points sort of thing. Um, we can disagree on that. That's part of what makes markets. But Four years is a long time. Four years is an awful long time away, man. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, 
I, I, I like four-year time periods, but I understand your point. If I think about the dynamics, though, in terms of this type of spread that has historically mean reverted, wouldn't you draw the same comparison? Mean, if we were to overlay high-yield credit spreads, they would look very similar, or investment-grade credit spreads, they would look very similar. In a period of financial repression where effectively the objective from the government is to keep credit spreads low, do you think this has the same explanatory power going forward? Or do you, do you think that I'm just constructing a narrative that matches up with what we're currently seeing? I mean, circling back to you know our first two sentences here, it's never different this time. That's yeah. my mantra. It's never different this time. I can't explain why or how, but I just do not think that we're we've reinvented human tragedy. Uh, I mean, hubris, greed, ego. Uh, we wrote about, the Greeks wrote about it. Shakespeare wrote about it. It, has, it just hasn't changed. Uh, and, and this idea that we've invented a new paradigm, I just don't believe. It's a, it's a different song, but it's still music. Um, and I think that we'll find some way to go and cause trouble, which is why, I mean, I kind of believe in inflation, ultimately. I mean, is it next year? No. Is it in 20 years? I don't know. I, I, I actually, I, what I do think it's going to happen in two to four years when the demographic bubble rolls over. We could do that later on. No. Um, but I think we're, we're gonna get it because I don't think you could print the coin of the realm at a faster pace than the overall growth of the economy without inflation at some point. Now, could it take 20 years? Why not? I mean, it took uh, 400 years for the Roman Empire to collapse. So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, um, maybe not. This policy of, of, of money printing uh, is not going to end well. That doesn't mean it was a bad public policy, by the way, because, I mean, you know, having the economy totally collapse, uh, either in 09 or, or, you know, last year, uh, is certainly a bad idea. So maybe deferring the pain or spreading the pain out. I, I, I think that inflation is the ultimate solution because inflation is, the, is, the, is, the, is a beautiful tax. It taxes everybody. It taxes them silently and the politicians don't have to vote on it. And so as a tax, everyone, well, I wouldn't say they're happy, but it, it, it's, it's the easiest one to live with in a, uh, in a democracy. So I actually disagree with that. I, I think um, inflation is um, perceived as a policy choice. I've rarely seen inflation um, be generated on a policy basis, right? Without making terrible choices that make everything worse, right? So. To point to Zimbabwe and say inflation is a beautiful tax, obviously that's a hyperinflation, that's the destruction of a financial system and a monetary system. So that becomes very weak. But this probably is not a bad time to talk about the demographic component, which is something that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about for several years, and I believe is slide nine. Yeah. It's a Gerard Minix chart. So the 10-year note versus trend labor force growth. This is a chart that I've shown several times in the past. Tell me what you, how you're thinking about this. Well, I mean, what I think is the boomers were a uh, the, the iceberg, pig in the python, and no. that the inflation we had in the 70s and 80s was the boomer generation plunging into the economy uh, age, you know, I mean, back then 25 to 35, now it's probably 30 to 40. Uh, and when you come into the economy, you buy a house, you get married, you have a kid, you buy a car, you buy a washing machine, and you're demanding aggregate demand of goods from the prior generation, which is the World War II generation, which is smaller. So you have more demand and supply and you get prices up. And then as this labor force growth rate rolls over from the popular demographic shift, 
um, that changes. And so what is projected here, and this is a, actually a rather old chart, but you could use it for years and years because demographics don't change, yep. except, for, except for immigration, of course, uh, is you have this labor force growth rate inflecting and coming back up again in 2023, 24, 25. And this same chart, PIMCO has a nice chart. Uh, Joachim Fels did a piece on this a few years ago. You should go look up. It's the same idea. That the demographics will roll over as the boomers exit and the millennials come in. And the millennials are, as a, as a percent of the population, smaller than the boomers, but they're, as numbers, they're actually bigger. And so if they're going to start demanding goods. And the average age of first child in many of the blue states now is 31 in San Francisco, 30 in New York. Uh, versus, you know, 23, a couple generations ago, we're kind of going right into this demographic, uh, which should create increased demand from a smaller supply. And if you get that, you should get higher uh, rates and higher inflation. So um, I, I hang my hat on, on demographics. And we're gonna and I've been talking about this for five years now. We'll see if I'm right. Well, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is, so first of all, you and I very much share this. I tend to think that this is more a function of inflation than quote unquote yield, right? So um, the two are obviously linked because the, the yield incorporates a nominal component to it, right? With, without the Fed, yes, they're the same thing. Without the Fed. <laughs> and, you know, the question that I have is I, I tend to sympathize with this view, although there's a couple of things that I would point to. One is, is that this is based on UN medium fertility forecasts, which have been hopelessly too high, right? Just ridiculously too high. The second thing that I would, would highlight is exactly as you're referring to, as we have shifted back the age, my guess is, is that we're actually gonna see reduced labor force participation um, amongst women that has been deferred up to this point, right? So I, I'm not as convinced that we're gonna see the growth in labor force that you're forecasting here. Um, you know, it, just the obvious one, for example, is 2022 is increasingly baked into the cake that will have actually declined over the last five years, right? Now we can argue how much of that's recession, et cetera, but um, these numbers actually look much worse than the chart would have a couple of years ago, I, I would, would suggest. Fair enough. Um, but I do think that this is actually a really important feature because it does raise the point, you know, like the Fed doesn't control workforce growth, right? It does, it, it, it can influence it and then policy can influence it, but it really doesn't control it. And so is there an element in your math that says we have the illusion of control from the Fed that, you know, we, we point to them and they have the illusion of control, but do they actually control this process? Well, I've, I've always thought that the, uh, the three policy errors that could have been made in the last uh, uh, presidency was tax policy, trade policy, immigration policy. Uh, I always thought the immigration policy was the actual one that was the, the biggest problem. The other two always got all the airplay, you know, Smoot-Hawley or some tax reform. Uh, immigration has always struck me as the, as the, the wooden stake because this is why the U.S. has not followed the same path as uh, Japan or Western Europe um, or China. For I mean, going forward, uh, is is we welcome immigration, and immigrants tend to be relatively productive. Uh, and believe it or not, immigrants have a lower crime rate than native-born people. So immigration has been good. I'm not going to debate the policy per se. I'm just going to say if people come into this country, that grows the labor force. 
Uh, and it doesn't matter how we grow that labor force, that's a good thing as a public policy concept. Um, uh, control on the border, whatever. Uh, you can have your own thoughts on that. What worries me is if we were to close that 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 you know, supply of, of of young productive labor, that's not good. So I, I tend to agree with that, and I would actually highlight that it's often underappreciated the role of immigration reform in the 1920s, right? So the the Immigration Act of 1925 radically slowed the pace of immigration yeah. from particularly Western Europe and uh, to a lesser extent Asia into the United States. Um, and set the stage for housing collapses that preceded the Great Depression. I'm worried that we will have a similar outcome here, effectively that we have taken what would have been a source of exogenous demand, effectively new members of our society who, as you point out, demand apartments, dishwashers, homes, laundry machines, et cetera, not showing up on our shores and setting conditions for weak aggregate demand going forward. Um, I, I tend to be sympathetic to that. That's a headwind, no question about it. Um, and I, I, one more comment about the immigration is, one could say that immigrants don't pay taxes because they're off the books. Okay, fine, but they pay everything else. When they rent the house they're in, that landlord pays property taxes. When they go and they buy food, they pay taxes on that. So um, maybe they, maybe they get, get away with not paying income tax, but they pay everything else. Yeah, and I, I would suggest even that is probably significantly overstated, right? The you know it is it is a subset that is in the cash based economy. When you when you think about um, this type of model, right? I mean, so since two thousand, this model would largely have over predicted interest rates. In other words, you can see the ten year yield. The blue line is significantly above where the red line would match it. You know, the the way I look at this effectively is going back to my point on the four year, two year, et cetera, that the narrative of inflation, the narrative of significant growth doesn't necessarily match up with what we're likely to experience. There's a probabilistic event that could occur, right? We're seeing significant shortages and significant bullwhip effect from restocking, et cetera. We saw this in the PMIs today, um, today being uh, Wednesday, March 3rd. But if I look more closely at that type of analysis, I struggle to see where around the world we have the significant shortages, for example, that we had with China um, as they tooled up to service the world. Is there, a, is, is there an underlying source of demand, do you think, that is being missed that could propel us higher to a higher growth rate? Probably not. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I suppose if we start building uh, bigger walls in terms of uh, you know, securing our production supply lines, that, that, that could create pressures uh, uh, less supply. But I mean, you're presupposing that today's yield, today's price is the right price, is the base case price. I think that's just false. I think that the Fed has has pushed rates down for, for, for a reason. We could debate at the bar if it's a good or a bad reason whether it's been a winning strategy. But clearly the Fed has suppressed interest rates as a policy measure. And what I'm arguing to some degree is uh, that's the wrong number to start with. So maybe this this, this chart here is, is bother bothered because of the Fed. And so the question I'd push back to you is, what would be the right price? And forget the panic of taper tantrum. What would be the market clearing price um, after the you know shock if the Fed wasn't involved? And and I'll let them keep the front end at zero. I'll, I'll give them that. I mean that that's really the question we have, isn't it? And and, and this is really the the biggest cost of what the Fed is doing, is they eliminate 
the information that a market price signals to us. Uh, when you have a flat curve, when you have low vol, it tells speculators it's okay. I can pinpoint uh, a, a few reasons, but number one from the uh, early 2000s was Greenspan's measured pace. He says, I'm taking rates up 25 cents every six weeks for the next two years. Well, that means everyone in the world is going to sell a 30 basis point out of the money put for six weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And try to earn free money. That, that's a terrible idea. You're, you're, you're encouraging speculation. You're encouraging moral hazard. That's why you want a steeper curve in the Fed to get out of this thing so we can have, uh, there, there is a, a cost, there's a risk, people transact and work accordingly. That's how you avoid a, a, a volatility event. Um, so, so uh, and how do you signal to, to companies that they should be growing or shrinking their factories or hiring or, or firing people if there's no information from that yield curve? Uh, so I, I share your concerns on all of that. I think the underlying feature that, that is so frustrating to me is exactly what you're describing, which is we've robbed people of price signals, right? So, and simultaneously, we've focused ourselves on stability, right? So I, I would, when you ask me the question of what's the right rate, I think the question is, is that's very conditional, right? Is it, what is the right rate if the Fed continually steps in to drive stability to the production function, right? Effectively preventing corporations from going out of business. Well, if you do that, then the answer is, is that the right rate gets lower and lower and lower because the marginal um, user of capital is becoming more and more of a zombie. And we're broadly seeing this, right? And zombies can't, you know, uh, maybe I'm gonna mix my metaphors here, but they can't be exposed to the light of market-derived rates, right? Um, and so you actually end up pushing it down. The second thing I would suggest that happens in, in a highly financialized economy is a bond becomes less important as um, a hold to maturity instrument for most players and instead becomes a source of collateral, effectively allowing you to take a levered position. This is the area where I struggle most, and I'd actually be really interested in your thought process on this because we see a lot of bonds that are trading at significant premiums to par, right? And that premium to par increases their collateral value, right? I can, I, if the bond is trading at 120, I can borrow against its value at 120. It doesn't matter that its par value is 100. But as we move forward in time, the value of that bond now begins to retreat back towards par, right? So there's a natural decline in collateral in the system that is embedded as bond prices mature. I think this is part of the reason why we keep getting trapped in this framework of, we think we're being really loose in terms of monetary policy, and then it turns out that we're suddenly very tight, right? That the collateral is not capable of supporting the system that's in place. We saw this with you know dynamics in 2018 where the Fed had to stop the process of tapering the balance sheet, right? We're gonna see this with the SLR, the supplemental leverage ratios where reserves need to be calculated in a slightly different way. Otherwise we could see bank lending contract regardless of the steepness of the curve. How do you think about those technical details in terms of creating a cycle of crisis that of course makes the Fed even more powerful? I, I, I think it depends upon the speed that these things happen. Uh, I mean, a bond going from 120 to par probably is a very slow 
Uh, and it's, it's much slower than the volatility of underlying assets. So I'm, it's, I think it's a good story, but I'm not terribly concerned by that. I mean, mortgage market, we keep seeing 105 bonds, you know, instantly converted back to par bonds via refinancing. And that doesn't seem to be too big an issue right now. I, I, are you circling the drain around the TGA account, how they're going to drain that down by a trillion dollars the next uh, X number of months? Um, I, I, I think to some degree, um, the Fed's words are probably most important in terms of signaling what they're going to be doing. When people hear those words, do they think what they're saying is possible? Um, I think it is possible to keep the funds rate very low. I think, it's, I think it's possible to keep the two-year very low. I'm not convinced it's possible to keep the back end very low without consequences. Um, this has been the, the big question I've had is, let's just say that I'm right and we get you know, a 3 4% inflation okay, a, a few years from now. Does that necessarily mean that being short treasuries is going to win. No, it could be the Fed might keep it at two, and therefore you'll have a negative real rate. Um, that's that's the hard part for me to figure out. Is I mean, I could be right on the underlying economics and cash flows and defaults and everything else, but it doesn't mean I could put, I could say where the where the money's going to be now. If the Fed does keep the rate at two percent via some yield curve control, there's no free lunch, and then what happens is the currency collapses. I mean, the, the money has to go somewhere. Um, and so to the extent the Fed makes promises or, or, or uh, suggestions that the market doesn't believe it's possible, that's a, that's, that's a bad idea. If they, can, if they make suggestions that are reasonable, that, that are within their purview, I think that that can smooth things. Prices, prices moving up or down is, is never the problem. It's the speed with which it happens that's really the issue. So when you say the currency collapses, what, is that, what does that actually mean to you? Because the, the offset to that, of course, is if the U.S. currency were to decline by any significant amount, then the rest of the world actually would suddenly find itself at a disadvantage in terms of the ability to um, continue to sell their surplus production to the U.S., right? Because the demographic problems that you highlight here are magnified if I look to China, for example, or if I look to Europe, where the aggregate demand function is not growing, X their ability to sell to the rest of the world. How do you, how do you think about that dynamic of what it means to have a currency collapse in a fiat type system? Well, you're calling me out, which I appreciate. Collapse is, is, the, is versus what? Mm -hmm. um, if all the other currencies are also fiat and going down, then we're collapsing versus, I guess, real assets. Um, is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, well, that's, that's, that's unclear to me. Gold, Bitcoin, real estate. I mean, that's why I think that's why you're seeing an elevation of these various assets as people want to get out of fiat currency. Uh, it, it's a dynamic system. I mean, let's go back a, a year and change. Uh, you had German bonds at negative a half and U.S. rates at positive one and a half. My kids asked me, why would anyone buy a German bond at negative one? Why would anybody buy a bond at negative one half percent? Uh, the answer, as opposed to a US bond, you know, 200 higher. Well, because the currency went from 106 to 121. So it moved 15%. So burning your 2%, uh, clearly that was a better idea um, to own negative rates in a more stable, stable currency. I don't know how it plays out, except for the fact that the Fed can't control everything. They could grab the balloon and squish it, but some of it has to pop through their fingers somehow. And the question is, which part pops through their fingers? And ex ante, do they 
Do they know what it's going to be? And they're, they're, they're ready for it. They know they can't control everything. They know that there, that there will be a reaction. It's a dynamic system. It seems that the whole, if they hold US rates down, the currency must go down versus what I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. So if, if I think about that dynamic, um, I mean, one, I would, using that analogy of the balloon being squeezed, right, and, and stuff popping out, I think one of the interesting questions is, you know, is the balloon inflating or is the balloon <laughs> deflating, right? Because if you're squeezing it and it's deflating, you're not going to get the same bubbles. And my, my fear is that we are too confident in the nature of the inflating balloon because that's the world that we inhabited through through the 20th century, right? Um, if I look to the 21st century, I, I struggle with what where the growth markets are that result in high returns on ca- on incremental invested capital, right? I mean, we see this with the leading tech companies where their primary use of cash is to buy back their own shares, effectively saying there is no prospect for us to invest this incremental capital at high marginal returns. How do you think about that in the context of what the right rate is? If you were investing in real assets, where would you spend money today? Uh, Look, I'm I'm a... I'm a value investor, which has uh, been a, a losing proposition for the last decade. I know your returns better than that, Harley. Not a losing proposition, but go ahead. I, 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 I like owning things that where there's a, a, a real cash flow, a real business, and there's barriers to entry. I own California real estate. I own Manhattan real estate. Um, will the government tax those things into oblivion? Perhaps they will, but um, uh, they're, they both offer very unique things that they can't make more of them. And, and by the way, the governments tend to go and, and make it more difficult to build. I, so I like owning those things. Um, there's lots of companies out there that make uh, products and there's various entry. I like owning them. So that's, that tends to be where, where I go. And my horizon tends to be, you know, two to five years as opposed to, you know, two to five minutes. Well, when you talk about two to five years, I actually want to jump um, back to one of your slides. I think it's slide seven in my deck, which is the seven year into 20 year implied volatility. And this is just another way of illustrating kind of the longer term framework that you often adopt. And to me, this is actually a really interesting chart, among other things, highlighting the fact that the expectations for the next seven years are that rate volatility for longer bonds is going to remain exceptionally muted. Is that the right way to read this chart effectively that you look at this and say, yeah, I'm not as convinced that they're gonna be able to hold this as stable as the market is pricing right now? Uh, What I read is um, not that the market's predicting something per se, but there is massive supply of long dated volatility, long dated options into the market from structured notes, specifically from bonds issued in Taiwan, which way too technical to talk about, but let's all just say there's a huge seller of that option, that volatility, and there's very few buyers uh, of options, um, which of course is something we both agree with in the terms of uh, options, uh, call options uh, in the US stock market are, are way too cheap. That doesn't mean that we're bullish, it just means it's just the wrong price because people sell call options to go and take short-term income. Um, over here, um, I do think this vol is, 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 is too low. And I think the, the best value in the market right now is to buy these long dated options 
on interest rates. And um, so a seven-year option on the 20-year interest rate, which is kind of looks and barks like a, like a seven-year option on the 30-year treasury. It's extraordinarily inexpensive because the implied vol is the key driver more than the rate actually. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why I want to own this is not because I'm dead positive rates are going to be higher, but that I know that if rates go higher, that's going to be Armageddon. And that's where you want to go to uh, chart. You can go to 10, you can go to 11, you can go to 12. All, all, all these charts here all say the same thing, which is for the last X number of years, we've seen stocks and bonds go in opposite directions. Yep. They hedge each other. And you've seen people like you know Bridgewater become billionaires using what's called risk parity, where they might buy, you know, with a hundred dollars of assets, they'll buy uh, seventy dollars of stocks, hundred thirty dollars of bonds. So they're they're levered two to one, right? But that's because they kind of go like this and they balance out, and they've all gone up. What would happen if that correlation flipped, and stocks and bonds went down together and up together? That's what all these charts are saying. You have it from uh, Gerard Minnick, you have it from Credit Suisse, you have it from Bank America. It's all the same data. It shows you that if rates get, rates or inflation, um, which may be different, but I'll call them the same, get three and a half, four and a half, somewhere there, that correlation will flip. And if we get stocks and bonds going down together, when we've seen that happen, which is we saw it in March, and we saw it uh, before that, uh, before that, when they go together, it is really a problem um, because then everything is, is in liquidation mode. And I want to own that option, that insurance policy, that if we ever get to 4%, that I am I'm stopped out. That, that, that I own, I own a lot of, I own some big, heavy volatility because if, if a one-year one option, if the vol goes up by 10%, the price doesn't really move that much. A seven-year option, if vol goes up by 10%, that option goes up by a lot. I want to own that risk, and I want to own the, 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 the direction risk that higher rates, I make more money. So, um, and truth be told, if the option expires worthless, God bless you, man. Um, this, this, is the, this is the ultimate insurance policy for anyone who is uh, in financial assets, which is basically anybody with money is in financial assets um, because we're a financial economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Which is unfortunately a shrinking share of, uh, of the population that has money, but um, that's a joke. <laughs> so I, I actually have an interesting question on this, which is if, if I think about this type of correlation, right? And, and I agree with you 100% that the, the Fed put more accurately is described as a Fed reaction function that says anytime financial assets fall in value, we're going to cut interest rates, which then causes bonds to go up in price and establishes additional buying power for equities, right? There was a good paper by Jonathan Parker of MIT that came out in 2020 that highlights this mechanism. People have heard me talk about it from the correlate, from the, the um, collateral standpoint. But I also wonder if there is, maybe the better model for this is the correlation when rates uh, go negative, right? And 
Real uh, rates or, or nominal rates? So nominal rates, which may or may not happen, right? But it becomes an interesting question because if you think about what the Fed has done with a positive yielding 10-year bond, or even a two-year bond for that matter, right? If the price of that bond is going to behave in the opposite direction of equity prices, so negative correlation on price, but a positive expected return because it carries a positive interest rate and has no credit risk associated with it. What you've actually done is create a synthetic put with positive expected return, right? So you now can buy as many puts as you want and you're not gonna lose money if you hold it to maturity. Uh, to the extent you believe negative nominal rates are possible, which I don't. Right. So even if you don't believe that negative nominal rates are possible, you can't actually lose money on a hold to maturity basis buying a positive yielding two-year bond. Right. You can lose it in real terms, but you're not going to lose it in nominal terms. And nominal terms is what ultimately drives portfolio construction. Right. Um, nobody's ever come to me and said, hey, your collateral has fallen in real terms, um, and therefore I'm going to execute a credit agreement against you. Right. Is there a chance that the signal on this flips in the other direction? Right. In other words, if they were to decide that they can't do anything other than take interest rates negative on the next crisis, would you expect this relationship to continue to hold? Because I, I think it actually would look like a seagull. I think I think that you'd actually see it flip in the opposite direction as people suddenly discover they no longer have positive carry puts. I, this is hard to imagine because I just I, I don't believe in negative rates. There, there's no, no evidence they've worked in, in Europe or Japan. And by the way, they are not the world's reserve currency. And to the extent we go and create negative rates, you basically rip the plumbing out of the world's financial system. As we said in the very beginning, the banks are the plumbing of our system. I, I just don't foresee it happening or being helpful at all. I, I suppose if you, if you in that world of four-dimensional chess where you have the rates can go to negative 5%, I, I suppose you're right in, in theory. But I, I, I mean... That presupposes that rates can go negative, which I think they can't, which, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why you've seen the move so low is that uh, you, you're hitting this zero boundary condition and that as rates go up, the move will catch up with the rest of the market. So as a, as a small technical matter, case, people were curious why uh, the move is still trading in the you know, low 60s. No, so I, I, I actually completely agree with that, that if, if you're bound at the zero point, right, this is going to be one of the interesting questions. If the Fed, you know, to me, it falls into the category of there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Um, <laughs> if we experience bad enough events, I, I have to believe that the Fed is going to take actions that are designed to, um, you know, improve the liquidity function, taking rates negative, is certainly something that we've seen. When you say you don't believe in them, right? What you're actually saying is it's not that you don't believe in them in the same way you don't believe in the Easter Bunny, because clearly they exist, right? Um, of course, yes. You're saying you don't believe that they are effective. Um, in the same way I might just describe- no, I, 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 I think it, 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 it doesn't work. I think that if they did it in this country, you'd have people with pitchforks and torches storming the Fed. And by the way, the Fed has other tools. They can go and buy credit bonds. They can go be, they can be Japan, buy equities for God's sakes. I mean, are you talking about a real, real fundamental economic problem? Are you talking about a financial crisis? A financial crisis they can fix. They can just print money and buy the assets. That solves that problem. Um, the underlying economy, they can't fix. Um, but the Fed has other tools, much more effective than taking rates negative. 
You know, taking rents negative means that by lowering the financing, I'll get some other dolt to go and buy an asset. The Fed just buys it themselves. Um, why try to work through the system? Uh, that's what Japan's doing. And will the Fed do that? Unlikely, but certainly that's vastly more effective than being an intermediary and, and taking rates negative. Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, I, I think that it, we won't know until the next crisis what they're definitely going to do, but I, I think that the world is generally accepted that buying the assets directly is more impactful. The challenge is if they begin to buy equities, and I, I would argue this about Japan, um, aren't you eventually just starving the private sector of the income associated with that? Like all these policies, at the end of the day, there's a core problem that there's too much debt and too much money in the system relative to the economy. And, and we've been, for, for, for 12 years now, we've been trying to go and paper it over in various ways and, and, and defer the you know, ultimate denouement, which will come. You know, will it be a debt jubilee? I, I mean, it, it's biblical, so why not do it again? I mean, somehow we have to go and untangle uh, this, this debt uh, bubble that we have. Uh, will it be done slowly or quickly? Uh, is unclear. I, I think what's I think the current policy is a good idea. I think the money has been printed. It's in the system, and there it is. It's just not being used because it went into the banking system and not into people's hands who spend it. Um, uh, I think this you know fiscal package. 1.9, 1.6, 600, whatever. It's a big number, okay? And it's going to happen. Um, and that money is going to go to people who spend it. I mean, you and I have done pretty well. We get, you know, $1,000. It's not going to be spent all, all that quickly. 40% um, of the population, at least the last Fed study a few years ago, could not come up with $400 in a heartbeat if they needed it for a broken car or a medical bill or a dishwasher, whatever it might be. 40% does not have access to $400 on the spot. When they get a check from the government, they're gonna spend that money in the economy. That is a public policy good. Um, will some, you know, millennials go buy some GameStop options? Perhaps, but uh, this money will go into the economy directly as opposed to, you know, a, a wink and a prayer by the Fed in, in, in their past efforts. I'm a little bit less sanguine about that because the, one of the challenges when you have this type of event is that your data systems begin to break down, right? So what we see is a large surge in savings rate um, is difficult to disaggregate. There's actually some recent materials that have come out that highlight that the lower income portion of the population is actually more stressed today than they were going into coronavirus, despite the increase in unemployment benefits, despite the transfers, et cetera. And broadly, I'd suggest that that seems to make sense when we're looking at a world where something like 40% of those who owe rent are behind on their rents, right? It doesn't strike me as plausible that they have suddenly improved their financial situation. To me, that's the group that's going to spend it. Um, you know, the, the marginal player where we've started to see improvement has largely been a function not of the income replacement, but has been a function of, of expense avoidance, right? It's, it's somebody at the 80th percentile who can't go to restaurants anymore or who can't travel and take their family on vacation. So I'm a little bit less convinced than you are that we have this giant untapped amount of spending going forward, but that ultimately will only be seen in the future, right? We just, we don't know the answer to that. And I think that's one of the challenges. Again, you bring up the fantastic point 
that when we talk about these sort of forward rate levels or we talk about these components, these are not forecasts. These are non-arbitrage conditions and can basically be thought of as the center of a forward distribution of potential outcomes, right? Um, and it becomes a question of, is it up or down from there? Well, I'll just say this. Maybe what I'm describing as a policy measure sucks, but okay, fine. What's your plan B that's better in the current, with the, with the cards we have dealt in front of us or the policymakers have dealt in front of them, what's the better policy? I mean, I mean, unless we want to go to the, you know, Andrew Mellon concept of, you know, liquidate farms and liquidate the banks and, you know, flush the whole economy uh, down to, to, to cleanse the pipes, which in theory is a good idea, except for the, 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 the human factor of, you know, people being, you know, on the streets. I, I, I don't see what plan B is away from this. I don't like it at all. It's terrible. But I mean, the Fed should, look, they had their window. 2013, they should have backed off, let the market move. And, and that, that was the window. And they chickened out. And that's that. Um, yeah, QE one had to happen, but you know, QE infinity after that was was foolishness. And um, uh, I wish we had a Paul Volcker uh, to go and, uh, and 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 take the bullet for for, for doing what was necessary back then. But I, I ask you, what what's Plan B or Plan C? If this is the wrong one. Yeah, I, I think I think that's absolutely the question to ask. And um, you know, the history of bailing out over levered economies through modest inflation is not particularly strong, right? It's the idea that um, you can reduce debt loads through inflation tends to fly in the face of the fact that those who are most adversely affected by inflation are not those who are the wealthiest, but those who are closest to the marginal survival point, right? And they are in turn forced to take on debt to try to continue to feed their families or keep their themselves in homes uh, where the rents are rising, for example, right? So it, 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 inflation is not a good mechanism for redistribution and unfortunately tends to benefit those who are closest to the money spigot first um, and have best access to credit, which gives you the ability to lever an exposure. Um, so I don't actually think it's the solution. I do think that, that you mentioned one of the biblical solutions, which is a redistribution, right? A, a um, debt jubilee, which is taking assets from the rich and giving them to the less well-off right, those who are indebted, that type of redistribution, I think, is almost certain to happen at some point. It becomes a question of, of when and how aggressively so. But that, you know, Real Vision viewers have heard me talk about the dynamics of how that was important in Caesar's rise to power in the Roman Republic. That sort of populist movement, I think, is eventually going to be inevitable. I think part of the irony for me with the Biden administration is that it's so inherently conservative, right? I mean, we've abandoned the $50,000 debt jubilee for student loans. We've abandoned the $15 minimum wage. We're increasingly cutting back in you know, the levels of support that are being discussed to provide to the economy. You know, $2,000 stimulus checks have become $1,400 stimulus checks. Those $1,400 stimulus checks have now been reclassified into a component of eliminating a tax credit um, you know, and effectively distributing it on a smoother basis, which has different impacts, but um, is far less impactful than adding to it. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I mean, I, I continue to fall into the camp that says, I think we're going to be surprised that the economy is weaker than people think it is. That most of the price increases that we've seen to date are relative price increases, effectively meaning 
you get to buy less because it now costs you more to fill up your car um, at the gas station. Um, so, you know, you, you, you do less with that. I, but I, I don't know that I got, I very much am skeptical of the idea that we've got some fantastic reopening that is going to be hugely accelerative in terms of economic activity. What is your thinking about the reopening process and whether this is inflationary or whether it is disinflationary as people return? Unclear if it's inflationary. Certainly there's going to be a you know, positive GDP effect and people will get, will get jobs and get hired again. You know, the, the actors can go back to working at, their, at, the, at the bar. So, I mean, that's a good thing. I, I think the more interesting concept is, is, is um, pumping the, the process of helping this, pumping this money in, where's this money gonna go to? Uh, will it go into people's hands as we hope, uh, as I've projected, or, or, or will it go just in, back into the stock market? But this is why uh, I, I like owning options on, on both sides of, of, the, of the equation here, because I've identified a bubble but I haven't said, is it going to pop tomorrow or is it going to keep getting inflated? Um, owning the downside put clearly is a, is a clever idea, but you know, those are expensive. Owning the out of my call is actually the much more clever idea. Once again, not because I'm bullish, but because it's so cheap. If I'm wrong, who cares? Um, and when you uh, create these portfolios where you own both sides, um, it, 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 it does more than create a profit for you. It stops you from doing bad things. If you own some kind of insurance policy, uh, like in March, um, it stops you from selling in March. And if you just didn't sell in March, you've done great. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, the market's much higher than it was January 1st of last year. So the only trade you had to do in March was just not sell. You didn't have to buy. And mm -hmm. if, if owning insurance policy allows you to do that, that's a good thing. I, I, I do think that the, the government is going gonna, is gonna to pump money in. I think both sides are in favor of that. Um, and I think that can, if, the, if that money goes into financial assets, um, we could melt up um, somewhat quickly. So well, I, I think this is going to be the interesting point. And, and so, you know, you, you brought up a really interesting dynamic that you tend to own the options, that you view the options as really cheap. There's a sizable fraction of the population, though, in the investment community that looks at these types of problems and says, um, Yes, it's cheap, but I can't stomach burning. Uh, I can't run a negative carry. And so like what I saw happen with the bond crash in the past couple of weeks is players who had purchased protection, as you point out, it's expensive to bet on lower yields, right? And so one of the ways they had defrayed that cost was selling protection against higher yields, effectively selling the rate, the, the rate payers. What's your... What's your reaction to that? Because that goes back to our question of what happened in the last couple of weeks. You don't think it was the convexity hedging. You don't think we entered the what you had, you know, um, trademarked as the convexity vortex, right? This idea okay. that you moved into a regime in which the market participants needed a hedge. But we unquestionably saw a crash, right? What, what do you think was the drive? Crash. Ah, crash. A big move. So very similar to what we saw following the, the Trump election in 2016, right? The bond yields spiked significantly in a high duration instrument that caused, you know, 25 plus percent corrections in bond prices. Look, I started on Wall Street when Ginny May 12s were trading at par. So going from, you know, 
1 to 1.5 does not strike me as a, a crash. It's, it's, all, it's all relative, man, okay? I, I think you're kind of circling around this idea of convexity and whether you want to be long or short it. Um, anyone on this cast who has not read my piece on, on my site, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thought piece about convexity, explaining it to people in simple terms. Um, uh, it's an educational piece. Uh, there's no trade involved in that. Uh, the whole thing about convexity really is um, this notion of limited gain versus limited loss. Which way do you want to be on that? And um, you know, people tend to go and, and misidentify risks. They overvalue um, small risks like lightning strikes or shark bites, which yep. never happens, okay? Um, and yet people will get into a taxi and not put their seatbelt on. I mean, this is total insanity. People just don't value risk properly. Um, I, as a, as a general rule, like being long convexity, which means I like owning the leverage. I like making three versus losing two. That's long convexity in a, in a, in a simple concept versus losing five, making four. That's negative convexity. Um, when I'm long optionality, long convexity, long acceleration, however you want to call it, um, I have unlimited gain at the limited loss. Right. Uh, if I'm running a hedge fund where people care about what I, I make or lose every month, um, well, I'm not doing a hedge fund. I'm, I'm, that's just the wrong business for me. I don't care about month to month returns. Um, if you're invested in that, God bless you, man, but I don't care. If you're looking at the longer term, look at all the billionaires out there. Where did they make their money? They made it by being long the option, and the long option was equity, right? Think about it. If a corporation has stocks and bonds, when you buy the bond, you get the coupon, and then you get back 100, and that's it. And if you're wrong, you lose everything. You're short an option, right? Limited gain, unlimited loss. Um, and uh, the stock is a call option. What's you could lose? You could lose your what you pay for the stock, and your gain's unlimited. All these guys who've made all this money in the last decade, they're long call options, not short them. They're long the equity. They're long the unlimited upside. Uh, versus versus limited downside. Uh, that is a career enhancing profile if you have the patience uh, to ride the daily volatility uh, as time goes by. Um, and what you and and whenever you see a financial crash, uh, convexity is always lurking at the scene of the crime. It's always a short convexity. Uh, the 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 Wall Street blow up that took out Merrill Lynch, they were just short options effectively. They weren't explicitly short options, but the structure of the portfolio they had was short, was long one option, short five options. And all the guys that had that trade on, they all blew up. Mm -hmm. um, 87, short options. Long-term ca long capital, short options. Yeah, um, there, there, there's a variety of, um, an al almost unlimited number of stories behind that. I wonder to what extent, um, you know, you and I actually bonded over this dynamic, right? When I um, became very active in rate options it, following the GFC, you became a mentor to me in this process. Well, thank and you. Much. I, I wonder to what extent you and I have grown up in an environment in which um, the low levels of yield have created a surplus of option selling activity. And now we're seeing with Wall Street bets, for example, in the equity markets, maybe they're less willing to sell those options. Maybe they're more interested in buying them. I'm wondering if, if, the, 
if something similar could emerge in fixed income? I don't know the answer to it. I'm, I'm, that's, that's a theoretical question to you. Is there a scenario under which you could see the regime change? I think institutions like selling options. Yeah. Because if you think about what, when you sell an option, let's say you have a covered call. So you buy IBM at 100 and you sell the 110 call. What you're really doing is converting the potential capital gain of the stock being over the strike price, over right. 110, into dividends, current, right. current income. It's a fixed um, income instrument, right. I mean, people like selling options because they're selling potential income for current income. And, and, and right. people, they, 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 it, it's a safety idea. Uh, people are not risk neutral, they're risk averse. So they prefer the money today versus a lot more money in the future. Is that a good idea? As a portfolio manager, it's terrible, but, uh, but it is human nature. Well, it's one of the interesting things we've seen following March 2020, in particular, actually, from November 9th of 2020 with the first vaccines. We've seen the quality factor, because if you think about what you're doing when you buy Coca-Cola and sell a, a 110 or 10% of the money call option against it, exactly to your point, what you've effectively done is create a high yield bond in Coca-Cola. Right. Right. And so if you're going to do that, then quality becomes particularly important. Right, because you want to make sure that you're buying something that it should not fall and fit by 50%, right? So, because you do have that downside risk. Post the vaccines, we've seen an explosion in the riskier names, the most levered names, right? Really coming off of even the March 20th, March 2020 lows. We've seen outperformance of the most shorted names. We've seen an outperformance of the most levered names, the junkiest names, quality versus junk is experiencing one of its largest drawdowns. And that's happening at the exact same time that people are, that the retail establishment is rushing out to buy call options. I wonder if that's being flipped to a certain extent, right? In other words, are we looking at an environment in which people have actually chased call options and chased that positive optionality for very good reason, right? They've been well compensated for doing so, but are we setting up an environment in which maybe flipping that, you know, returning to the higher quality names, et cetera, has value. I, I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely exploring it. I mean, the, the correlation or the flip side of what you're describing is if rate vol is going to rise, that's very bad for high yield or lower quality credits, right? Which yep. would also extend to the worse equities. And paradoxically, if that's happening on the perception of inflation, Right. I think a lot of people are positioning themselves for the idea that an inflationary condition or an increase in inflation expectations would be very good for those more cyclical, junkier names because it's creating this, um, th this nominal growth of the economy. I, I, I struggle with maybe that needs to be flipped. And again, you're, you're hearing me ask a lot of questions because I don't, I don't know the answers right now. Well, theoretically, assuming the credit you're comfortable with, you're supposed to go and sell the junk bonds you own and buy the underlying stock. You have, yeah. you have the upside. Um, and and uh, if, if the company goes bad, you lose either way. So I mean, you should be buying, buying these things. And, and it's since these things also are in theory, the cheapest in the market right now versus the fangs, it's not unreasonable. I mean, seeing the millennials buy stock options, I, I, I kind of like that. I, I'm not, you know, the GameStop stuff's a little, a little crazy, but um, you know, it's an optimistic view of the world. And I think being optimistic uh, is, is a good thing. 
So I, 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 I kind of like that. Well, that's one of the things I've always loved about you, Harley, is despite the fact that you're coming from the fixed income world and despite the fact that you correctly identify the dynamics of convexity, you are a relentlessly optimistic individual. Your sunny disposition matches <laughs> up with your California origins. Harley, you have put together a fantastic slide deck. Um, we're going to include that with the, the materials that are provided. Um, I would, as always, love to sit back down with you and, and let's shoot for about six months. And I know you're working on some exciting projects that you can't really talk about right now, but I'd love to explore those with you in the next couple of months as those come uh, to the public eye. Does that sound like a fair deal? Uh, sounds very good, man. Awesome. Harley, as always, it was great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.